Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life podcast. This is your host, Krista Bigler, private practice integrative nutritionist, helping people across the U.S. reverse digestive issues, eczema, and autoimmunity via phone and video consult. To learn more, visit lessstressednutrition.com. Now, on to the show. So today on The Less Stressed Life, we have Kristen Osborne. Kristen is the owner of The Prioritized Group, where she works as a trained disability advocate and food allergy consultant with over 16 years of experience. She educates parents whose children have life-threatening food allergies, navigate 504 plans in schools, and free from food prep at home. Kristen lives in Virginia with her husband and three sons, all whom have life-threatening food allergies to wheat, dairy, egg, peanut, tree nut, shellfish, and fish allergies. She also navigates life with children on the spectrum, ADHD, and asthma. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So uh, quick side story. I uh, did not know Kristen very well. I mean, I don't know Kristen extremely well, but we kind of knew maybe who the other person was. At least I knew who she was. We were in um, an online group together. And then isn't it fun to go to a really small conference and run into someone that you just sort of kind of know? Um, so that had happened, I think, maybe a year, maybe it was two years ago. At, we were both at a food allergy blogger conference my friend Elizabeth back early episodes where she talked about her, um, about her, uh, celiac disease diagnosis and kind of her story. And so anyway, I was thinking about Kristen recently because I knew she did this amazing work, um, advocating for those with food allergies, which is a huge need, by the way, if someone out there has a family or children with food allergies, I feel like, um, there's a big, big need for this. So, um, so anyway, I thought with the back to school season, we could chat. This is where I think either people are getting diagnosed with new food allergies, or I think that's probably the majority, but Kristen can kind of tell us the history here. Um, it's sort of like, oh no, like I'm sending my child to this public school and no one really under- understands this stuff. So she's going to peel back the layers a little bit. But before we get into uh, like some of the mechanics on how this stuff works and what someone can do. And by the way, I don't think this episode is not relevant if you don't have food allergies. So I hope no one stopped listening for that reason, because your friends, have food allergies and your children do. So I think it's important to be aware and empathetic, emphatic um, about this. So just want to throw that in there too. So Kristen, tell us the story. I'm sure you didn't just become a food allergy advocate for parents because it's what you wanted to be when you grew up um, necessarily. I think it, uh, maybe it was, but uh, I'm guessing it happened by happenstance. <laughs> tell us your story a little. 
I, I didn't. Um, my story just begins when I had my first child, who um, I just adored, and I couldn't figure out why every time I made shrimp scampi that his lips were swelling. And not having any knowledge or education about food allergies other than the fact that my husband had a fish allergy, I wasn't really aware of um, the signs and symptoms at the time. This is almost 18 years ago. And um, I kept feeding him shellfish uh, with this shrimp scampi. And uh, long story short, we realized he had a, a food allergy to shellfish. And it wasn't until he was eating mixed nuts at my parents' house that his eyes swelled, his lips swelled, and I realized this thing called food allergy was here to stay with her family, and it was extremely serious. I had a very, very scary ride to um, the emergency room, and uh, that day kind of forever changed our family dynamic. Fast forward a couple of years later when I uh, delivered our son, I wondered what our second son, I wondered why he would have reactions and um, kind of itch and scratch his face. And it was all because he too had a food allergy and I was nursing him and he was having reactions. So on his first birthday, we were celebrating with cake and he did not want to eat the cake or the ice cream or any of it. I just couldn't really understand. The next day, he had cottage cheese and toast for breakfast and had a full-blown anaphylactic reaction, passed out, um, lips were swelling, drooling, um, just uh, obviously not coherent. And we had an extremely scary ride to the ER. And at that moment, I kind of thought maybe he's allergic to wheat or dairy or egg. But after blood tests shortly um Thereafter, we realized that it was large to all of those. And I think that very moment really um, propelled our family into this kind of life we lived called the crazy food allergy life. But um, I know how parents feel when your child's diagnosed with a food allergy. I didn't want parents to feel um, alone at that moment. So that's kind of why I... I started my business to kind of give parents that extra support that they needed after they received a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that piece gets missed. There's a whole emotional mourning, right? It's like the grieving process. When you find out you're dealing with something, you have to grieve with it. And that's kind of hard to do when you don't have an advocate. I mean, you people would people would die to have an advocate at that moment. You know, they'd really they really need it. Um, just to recap there for a moment, I was trying to catch um that second food allergy, the second emergency ride, it was toast and eggs and cottage cheese. And how old was your child at that time? And had he eaten those foods before? Or was the compilation of three that produced the allergic response that time? This was the first time uh, he had eaten that at the time. He was one. Mm -hmm. And um, he had toast before and um, had not had cottage cheese, but I think it was a combination of all of that before. And the day before, we were kind of wanting to get that cake smash picture. So we were putting the cake in his mouth, and he was spitting it out, and we were giving him the ice cream, and he wasn't having it. And and I just kind of was flabbergasted that a one-year-old wasn't interested in ice cream. But obviously, um, he was telling us his body just wasn't having it, and he didn't want it. 
So I think between the combination of the food the day before and then his um, food that we gave him the following day, it was just a culmination of a perfect, crazy food Mm. allergic reaction. That makes sense, right? Because you think to yourself, oh, gosh, it feels like it kind of came out of nowhere, right? Which is what anaphylaxis is going to feel like no matter what the first time, right? Um, And it makes sense when you haven't had exposure to it before. But when you have had exposure to some of it, then it feels confusing until you sort of um, unwind the timeline a little bit. So that makes a lot of sense. So then, so then we've got two kids with food allergies. We've got the husband with the food allergies. And then what happens? I'm guessing you experience, so you want to be this emotional support person, but I'm guessing at this point, I don't know how old your kids are now. I'm guessing in school, <laughs> but I mean, something happened as well. I mean, for you to kind of get to this point, I'm I'm guessing you experienced, what was your experience as this crazy food allergy family? trying to help people understand what your children or family cannot have because your list of food allergies is long and then people get a little bit nervous, right? So, I mean, what year is it? And then what happens next? Well, this is probably about um, 13 years ago. So life in the food allergy world was a little different back then. Um, There weren't very many options for uh, gluten-free foods or brands or things like that. And um, my 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 close knit family uh, kind of understood what was necessary. Necessary if we uh, would go over for dinner, uh, they would need to make sure that everything was cleaned, the countertops, the surfaces, you know, the food that we were eating, the food that was being prepared was safe for everyone. And it took a it took an adjustment. Um, it it was difficult navigating friends and um, play groups because when your kids are younger you want to bond with other moms and um, play on the playground or in um, play groups with other friends and one of the favorite um, snacks for toddlers are goldfish and goldfish are um, wheat and dairy and it's just one of those things that just doesn't um mesh well with a child that has a wheat allergy, especially when um, he's contact reactive, will, you know, touch it and then, of course, put his hands in his mouth or his nose or something like that. But um, it, it, it's it was a struggle. And in that struggle, I found it to be very isolating and very um, frustrating, kind of communicating the same story over and over again. You mentioned before about the grieving process. Well, every opportunity that we had to educate someone else, we went through that grieving process over and over again because we had to share the story or share, you know, what happens and and how it happens and what signs and symptoms look for um, as far as allergic reactions go. And um, I found that some people were receptive and others just weren't interested. And that can be an extremely frustrating aspect, but... Mm -hmm. You're like running over to your child when his friend is trying to share his food with them and saying, no, not this time. Exactly. um, You kind of feel like a crazy (laughs) helicopter person. How many times did you have to deal with anaphylaxis um, as your children were growing? Oh, my goodness. Several times. At least 10, but that's not really um, a typical you know, given everyone in my family, we've experienced anaphylaxis uh, reactions at least 10 times. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. So I want to take a moment and just sort of define things for people. And then I want to hear how you introduce allergies to people um, a little bit. Because, you know, I work with people with food reactions. And I actually feel strongly about us not really misusing different food reaction terms. Because we don't want to downplay the seriousness of allergies. Not that other food reactions are not serious, but because food allergies can be deadly, right? And, and they, they can be. So I don't want to downplay the seriousness of it. So, and I, I think people somewhat know this, but I, at the same time, I'm biased and I, I'm quite certain that maybe probably, probably people don't know <laughs> everything. So a food allergy is what we typically think of. It's what we're most familiar with. It's an IgE like elephant reaction. Okay. So it's what your allergist or doctor recognizes, right? It's most commonly um, diagnosed nowadays by either a skin, um, a rat, uh, a skin prick uh, test. Basically, they kind of look for a dial that's more, it's m more used in environmental and Kristen's happy to correct me if she wants. Um, but this is the way I understand uh, the research. That's more of a gold standard in environmental, and blood test is a little bit more of a gold standard in food allergies. Now, I work with a fair amount of kids, and a lot of allergists will not even test kids under three sometimes, depending on this. I mean, if there's anaphylaxis, of course they're going to. Um, but sometimes the immune system changes over time, and so sometimes allergists will not want to, want to test right away. Um, and so that just depends on the doctor a whole lot. So that's IgE allergy. And those symptoms can vary a lot. Kristen probably is a little more, like she could probably spit out the list really easily. What people are most familiar with are anaphylaxis, which is like the tongue swelling, the throat closing, and those are the really scary, uh, throat vomiting as a possibility. But less severe reactions could be like hives and itching or um, sneezy runny nose, like those types of reactions are possibilities as well, right? People are used to that from their environmental allergies, those typical seasonal things. Now, there's a lot of other food reactions. And the reason I think that it is confusing out in the world is because no one has agreed 100% on the verbiage. So some groups call them all um, intolerances and some call them sensitivities. So at the end of the day, I think of intolerances like lactose intolerance. Your body's not um, doesn't have an enzyme to break something down. And I think of sensitivities as the other groups of food reactions. Now, uh, generally, that's not super well recognized. Like not everyone really agrees that that's a real thing, except we actually have recognized that it's a real thing because celiac disease is a... Um, is a type of a life-threatening type reaction to food, right? Where it, it cleans out the villi, which is where you, uh, it's, it's a it very damages on the inside over time. Um, but there is something called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Um, and that is basically the definition of a, it's a, it's not celiac, it's not food allergy, but it's like a, it's a different kind of sensitivity. So we've given a definition to it there, whether or not it's recognized in real life. So this is tricky because people are having an increased, um, prevalence of food reactions for a lot of reasons because of different things going on in the gut and the immune system, etc. But sometimes when we use the word food allergies all the time, it's not necessarily fair to the people that do have a true food allergy that has its life-threatening consequences. So Kristen, feel free to correct me on anything I said, but how do you introduce food allergies to people? Um, I am so thankful that you broke uh, that down because I, I explain food allergies as an IgE response to um, a protein in a food, and I kind of get a deer in a headlights look, but I start with that because that's exactly what's going on with my children. You know, protein in wheat or a protein in dairy, um, it, my, when my son would eat those foods, his body is saying, this is harmful, 
um, let's try to protect him by uh, showing hives or his throat swelling or, or tongue itching or throwing up or, or things like that. Those are all responses that our body is trying to correct the quote unquote wrong. And um, when I'm talking to people and trying to explain the difference between a food allergy and a um, food sensitivity or a, um, a uh, intolerance, I explain that if my children were to eat something that they're allergic to, their body has a response and it, it can potentially be life-threatening in the immediate sense. So it, it's not something that we take lightly. It's not, you know, I'm going to have a stomach ache and it's okay, or I'm just going to sneeze a little bit and it's fine. It, it's not, you know, like an, uh, an environmental allergy. It's something to pay attention to and to take seriously because, um, it's that important that you um, you get the necessary care and medication if there is an allergic reaction. Right. So we have we definitely have a lot of tools for allergies. Um, so I, I like how you went over that, and, and you reminded me that I forgot to mention that those other types of food reactions there can be. So IgE is that antigen, but there are many other antigens that are possibly coming from foods, and that's where people are having more of low-grade inflammatory symptoms that are not life-threatening in the short term, but more so kind of degrade quality of life long term. Um, so those can be IgG, that's really common, but there's also IgM and T cells, etc. So I just mentioned that because in a way we're talking about immune system reactions. A lot of the immune system is in the gut and it is possible to improve sensitivities and reactions. It's not normal for someone to be reactive to, I mean, everything. So, and that does happen as people get ill to, you know, for a variety of reasons. That's not what this episode is about. I just wanted to put these, you know, lines in the sand that we think we can improve other food reactions, but with food allergies, a true food allergy, like with what Kristen is experiencing in her family, we are not aware of any way to make those go away. Seasonal allergies, if we, and I actually have an episode about this, about allergy relief. If we understand the mechanisms of what's happening with histamine, a natural neurotransmitter that builds up, I have definitely seen over time environmental allergies improve or lessen in severity. Can we say that about food? Um, I'm not able to, you know, I don't think anyone's able to say that. And I think the tricky thing about that is no one's going to push the envelope on that one, right? Like, obviously, we're not going to expose ourselves to food allergies, whereas we cannot avoid environmental allergies. So it's easier to kind of see those things. So anyway, I just mentioned that um, a little bit. So allergies are serious. Um, it's hard to describe them to people, the severity of them. But fortunately, nowadays is probably a bit easier than it was 13 years ago um, for or unfortunately, right? So you were kind of a pioneer sort of in the field, uh, but now we're in a place where generally people are a little bit more accepting and understanding. Has that been your experience or do you find that you still, I mean, what do you think? I mean, do people seem generally more educated, but there's still just a lot to do? What do you think? I think people, they have a better sense of what per se a food allergy is. I think more people are familiar with one type of food allergy, say a peanut allergy, and that's kind of the end all be all, and that's kind of where they, they end as far as education goes. I think understanding there are different allergies, um, you know, the top eight, whether it's soy or wheat or dairy or egg, I think those kinds of allergies are um, 
always needing, you know, an educational kind of aspect of explaining to people what it is and, and how it works and what the severity can be and obviously um, how to um, help during an uh, anaphylactic or allergic reaction. And I think as time goes on, um, advocacy, uh, being able to advocate and advocacy is helping to alleviate some of the issues that we find, whether it's in school or on um, airplanes and talking about having epinephrine accessible on planes or just in general. I think there are more laws that are on the books now in different states. And in Virginia, we have a law for um, stuck epinephrine in schools, in public schools, because of a little girl who passed away to an anaphylactic reaction. So I think there's more... Um, awareness, but we still have a, a ways to go as far as um, being accepted and understanding um, the importance of taking people with food allergies seriously. Did you, do you feel like you answered the question, you know, how do you convey the seriousness of your child's allergies? I mean, do you feel like you're able to do that when you educate them or is there another way that you do that? There is. I always um, talk with uh, storytelling and I always share our family's story, whether it's my middle son and his anaphylactic reaction the day after his birthday, or my older son who had um, an anaphylactic reaction eating mixed nuts. I shared our story and what happens to us when a child, our children, have an allergic reaction. I find that when you share a story and you kind of talk through the points, the feelings, the emotions of um having an allergic reaction, being afraid or, or a little uh, nervous about introducing new foods or having foods in an environment, um, people tend to kind of understand. I think mm -hmm. a lot of times the, um, the concern that people have is they're just not educated to understand. So I always suggest educating by sharing your own personal story and from that point kind of building a bridge to um, kind of help navigate better life and better communication between you and whether it's school or, or you and um, a family member per se. I love that. Thank you for mentioning that because storytelling is a big deal. Sometimes I think I'm really boring to my clients because I'll say, let me tell you a story. We'll try to, um, <laughs> we'll try to solidify that concept of the story. So, so anyway, you, at some point your kids are going to go to school and you realize, oh my gosh, how do I equip the people caring for my children all day to deal with these food allergies? Tell us about your story first dealing with that. And then we can weave into how you help others doing it. Well, I have three different stories because I have three different children, but I'll focus on my um, middle son who has um, the wheat, dairy, egg, peanut, and tree nut um, allergies. And um, when he started kindergarten, I was terrified to say the least. I was nervous because we talked again about everyone kind of understands what a peanut allergy is, you know, what a prenut possibly uh, is. But when you start talking about dairy, egg, and uh, wheat, these are things that aren't necessarily familiar. And when you're going into kindergarten, you have fun and you play with Play-Doh. Play-Doh contains wheat. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of um, munchy math where teachers may take um, different uh, snacks and kind of count with them. So 
food is prevalent in classrooms. And I was concerned about being able to effectively navigate that, include my child, and also partner with the teacher and the administrators to make sure that every day um, he had a positive, uh, a positive day and didn't have a reaction. So um, one of the things that I did was to ensure that my children have a 504 plan. And a 504 plan is uh, basically a legal safeguard that protects students with qualifying disabilities in school. And it's backed by the uh, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. And basically, this plan ensures that students with a physical or mental condition that might limit their senses or um, other activities can fully participate like their peers. And the way this plan would help my son in school is um, the plan is kind of devised together. You're found eligible. And then there are accommodations that are written on the plan. And the teacher, everyone else that has contact with my son would look at the plan and go, okay, well, we would need this class to be food free because um, given the varying allergens, it's just easy to not have the wheat, dairy, egg, or peanuts or tree nuts in the classroom. Um, and that would be an accommodation. And the great thing about having this 504 plan is the accommodations in the plan are legally binding. They have ramifications if they aren't followed word for word. And it protects your child and makes sure that they're fully able to participate and learn in class without having to worry about um, a disability or having um, any sort of reaction. And 504 plans are for parents or for children who have food allergies. It uh, could be for a child that has asthma or ADHD or um, speech or language or traumatic brain injury. So it's not just for um, those children that have life-threatening food allergies. It's for a host of other different um different disabilities or conditions that children might have. So a 504 plan, how long has uh, food allergies been under the umbrella since the beginning? When was that put into place? Was that always there when you needed it? Did it come into place later? Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) Food allergies was not um, under the umbrella initially when um, the Americans with Disability Act was created, but um, it is there now. It's been about, let's see, 20 years or so, I believe. And um, it's it's there and you kind of have to qualify. And, you know, just because a child has a food allergy doesn't necessarily equate that there's a 504 plan. There's an eligibility process where uh, a team, a 504 team of administrators and teachers and students' parents or guardians kind of determine um, if the child is eligible. And that determination is based on you know, having um, the ability to not participate in class, whether it's, you know, uh, if a child were to have an anaphylactic reaction, obviously they can't learn. And so that in itself is um, a a reason that a child would benefit or qualify for a 504 plan. Mm -hmm. And the fact, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. You talk first. (laughs) The, um, And once the students qualify through a 504 plan, the committee then creates these individualized specific accommodations based on the child's needs. 
So if the child, um, for example, one of the accommodations that children have in their plan is to have access to an emergency bag. Um, and the emergency bag has safe snacks, safe food, so that if there were an emergency at school, whether it's a lockdown or a fire drill, this bag has food that's available for them in the event that they would need it. Okay. So who builds and approves the plan? Um, and it, it, I mean, it sounds like it's quite a team. So the parent maybe starts the process or who's the, I mean, I know you're the advocate, but, um, and, and that's awesome and wonderful, but it's not something someone can really DIY, right? Um, it's something that they maybe do need a little bit of help with. I mean, what is your, I, cause I, I don't know what this looks like. So is this like multiple pages? Is it a page you just sort of fill in some blanks and then people need to approve it? What does that look like? Well, it, it looks like a, a, a process, and the process is um, writing the letter and uh, giving it to your principal and saying that you want to request a meeting. And that's the first step. It is something, uh, going through the 504 process is definitely something you want someone with you to do, whether it's virtually or in person, because um, there are a lot of laws and legalities and um, you want to make sure that everyone is doing, as far as the school system, everyone is doing what they're supposed to. The process just starts with an eligibility letter and um, requesting a meeting. And in that meeting, uh, once the meeting is, is on the calendar, everyone arriving, you'll have uh, several people. Like I mentioned, um, the administrators, the principal, a nurse, um, the parents, possibly the child, depending on the age. And what, if the child is found eligible, then there's a, a meeting that will be held to create the accommodations. The accommodations vary. Um, the type of plan, what it physically looks like, varies from school system to school system. But typically, it's, um, it could be several pages. I, I have a child who has two or three pages of accommodations because a lot of times parents don't realize what kind of accommodations they need because you don't think, hmm, my child, there's food possibly on the bus. I didn't really think about having accommodations on the bus and what does that look like? Or um, there's food in the cafeteria. Where will my child sit? How will, if there's a reaction, how will it be handled? Um, what about food in the classroom? What about food in other areas of the school. So there's lots of different um, areas in the school that would would uh, pertain to uh, your child that you might want to think about when adding accommodations to the plan. That's why I always say it's great to have someone who understands um, what the needs of your child are, but also the needs um, and wants of what the school system might require. So, so tell. Do you have any tips for? Um, we were just talking about food in the cafeteria, and I've actually heard parents talk about how they wish their child didn't have to feel isolated from the other students. Like, for example, um, I don't know if this is still like it at my own school, but usually the kids with sack lunches sat at one table, right? And so, um, this this person quit packing sack lunches because she didn't want her kid to feel isolated, right? Because no one's packing sack lunches. And in a bigger school, maybe it's not a big deal. I mean, I think it varies very much by the school culture and whatnot, right? Like, what's more typical at this school? Um, what are your feelings about that? I mean, it's not an option to be cross contaminated. So, do you have um, feelings about how to make a child? Because we know food becomes, and this might be a whole nother topic, but food becomes a community. Thing. Thing, right and so it can be such a cha- it's such a mm-hmm. challenge and that's why it becomes so emotional and I believe me I know this I do not manip- manipulate or try to change ask people to change their diet unless it's their idea because people don't like that messed with right um so <laughs> 
So, I mean, do you have any tips for having a child not feel so isolated in this process in, in summary? I do. I do. A lot of times um, I always lead with what would the child want? Does the child who has food allergies, do they want to sit with their class? Do they want to sit at a separate uh, allergy-free table? Um, and from that point, I, we kind of navigate and create a plan. Okay, for my children, uh, we have one son in particular that wants to sit with his classmates during lunch, and we have an accommodation in his 504 plan that will uh, that states that an adult will come and clean his table, the entire table and all the seats, with a clean cloth and clean solution and um, wipe it so that there aren't any extra crumbs or anything like that on the table. And he gets to choose wherever he sits. So he can sit with his friends and um, it's fine. The only caveat is there's an empty seat on either side of him. And he likes that because it creates an extra barrier, an extra, you know, um, area of protection for kids that might spill something or um, kids that might try to reach over and touch him. Um, and, And that works. And for him, it's a great plan. I have another child that would prefer to sit at a separate table and we'll have friends that come and sit at the table with him. And then my oldest son um, preferred to sit with everyone else. So I have all, I've advocated for all kinds of different ways to make sure that children are fully included in lunch. But I always start with what the child would prefer because at the end of the day, as a parent, you're going to be, yeah, at the end of the day, all that matters is what the child would like because we want to make sure that they're included. Mm-hmm. So um, there's always a solution. I, I, I'm a firm believer and there's always a solution that um, can help the child and keep them safe. Yeah, I like this. So in, in theory, if, if things aren't quite, you know, if you talk to your administrators and you, there is a food allergy and things aren't quite right, then really a 504 plan is the next best option. So, and this is kind of a newbie question. You talked about an individualized plan. So is this fall under, once a 504 plan is created, is this where someone then has an individualized education plan or is that different? So this is something I hear get talked about at school, right? IEPs, right? When anyone who's got an individualized education plan, like there's just special circumstances around it. They have briefings on that and talk about it, whatever. Does this fall into that same bucket or is it a little different? It's um, different. An, An individualized education plan or an IEP has goals that are created and it, it's um, they're created to kind of help the child, whether they're struggling with learning or need some types of services. A 504 plan is just strictly accommodations and these accommodations help to ensure that the child can participate fully just like their peers. Cool. This has been some great tips. So finally, other than, I mean, if we could like have a one, two, three step, it would be Communicate with your people, right? What else? I mean, and you maybe you tell me the three steps. Well, first, steps. you want to make sure that you can communicate and you share your child's story with whomever you're talking about talking with, whether that's a teacher or a babysitter or a caregiver or a family member. You want to make sure they fully understand what your child's diagnosis story is and um, how why it's important to take precautions and what those precautions are. The second thing you want to do, especially when your child's in school, is to make sure that you have that 504 plan. It's fabulous when uh, schools are great at making sure that children um, have uh, with food allergies have a plan, and there's 
there's uh, precautions taken. But sometimes administrators leave. Sometimes you may your child may go to a different school. So having a 504 plan, something that's in black and white, um, will be followed whether you're in Virginia or whether you're in California. So it's it's nice to have that. Everyone knows exactly what needs to happen and why. And then finally, having great communication with the school and being able to communicate um, in advance with the teacher, knowing about class parties, knowing um, what food will be served where. Just have that open, effective communication is the number one uh, thing that work makes life a lot easier and making sure that you educate everyone along the way. I love it. So lastly, I mean, people just want some food ideas. So why don't we share our favorite food allergy friendly brands? I feel like after you go to a conference, here's the deal. People may not know this. Food allergy life has its own lingo. For sure. Like they have their own lingo. When I went to the that my first food allergy uh, conference, it was like free from, I mean, free of, free of, you know, like it, it just becomes sort of a lingo. Um, so I just throw that in there too, because I think this is a topic we could have talked on for a lot longer, but people want some like easy things or like what's obvious to you and me may not be obvious to someone else. So I have some favorite brands, but what are yours? Or favorite oh my goodness. Snack options. <laughs> There's so many to name, but I think my, my go-to for many different things, whether it's dairy-free chocolate chips or lentil chips that are uh, dairy-free, are um, Enjoy Life, the Enjoy Life Foods brand. It's available online on their website. It's available in your local Walmart, your local um, Whole Foods, anywhere that you've seen food. Nine times out of ten, you might be able to find um, Enjoy Life. They have all kinds of breakfast bites and um, mixes that you can use for muffins and pancakes and waffles and um, brownies. So having those in the house is a great way, especially when the teacher calls you at the last minute to tell you there's a party tomorrow. You have um, something that you can kind of whip up that's safe for your kiddo. Yeah, but, I like um, that. I like that. Go ahead. What else? Um, made, made Goods, another brand. They make um, granola and fun stuff um, that's, delicious for the kids if you're looking for any kind of protein whether it's a protein uh, drink or a protein replacement owen o-w-n only what you need is an amazing brand uh very delicious they um i take some of their protein shakes and put them in my um, pancakes i make for the kids but um there's so many i mean char has a gluten-free brand these uh daya so delicious. I could go on and on. <laughs> yeah. I like all those that you mentioned, especially Owen. I love their owners. I, um, I like some of some butters offerings, but I love 88 acres. Those, they have the best bars are in yeah. Boston and they're a nut free bar. That's super tasty. And they actually have some like watermelon seed butter and pumpkin seed butter Enjoy life. I was mm-hmm. going to also echo. I really like them. And if you're on their email list, they do have sales a lot. And then I like sweet Elizabeth's organics. And I loved the guys from Ra- I actually recommend rise brand rice flour all the time because you can use it one for one in baking, which isn't always the case in gluten-free baking. Sometimes it can take some, um, it can take some getting used to, but, um, if you try to keep it simple, then it works a lot nicer. And that is a really like simple one-to-one option. So those are some of my, I don't know, go-tos as well. Okay. Um, Miss Kristen, where can people find you online if they need help, uh, from the priority prioritized group? 
if you um, need help or need some guidance on how to navigate a 504 plan or you have no idea what to feed your child for lunch um, who might have food allergies, visit my website. It's www.theprioritizegroup.com and I'm more than happy to help you. Yeah. And actually, Kristen, in a week or two, you have a workshop coming up about 504 plans. Is that right? I do. I do. I have a workshop where we're going to learn the basics of a 504 plan and walk you through the process on uh, how to get one and who you need to contact specifically and um, talk about accommodations that might work for your child. And that will be um, the 26th for those who are interested and sign up. My um, wait list gets first. And then in September, it launches for the public. Okay, got it. So in September, people can access that. But if they go to your website, they can find it, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Cool. So it's the prioritizedgroup.com with Kristen Osborne. Um, Such a noble and wonderful area that she works in. Thanks so much for enlightening us today, especially me as a newbie in all the legalese. Um, So I really appreciate that. And hopefully we'll find a chance to talk again. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stress Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stress Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock.